3,000 years ago, there was a guy who was set out, who set out to figure out what life was about. His name was Solomon, and he was king. In our first two messages, we've looked at how he, he, he looked at his life, took stock of himself, even after he was the richest man in the world, the most powerful man in the world, good-looking, had a great life. He looked at himself, and he said, I still can't find what I'm looking for. Last week, we followed his search. The book of Ecclesiastes is a journal, and for those of you who've read the Bible several times and you look in the book of Ecclesiastes and you say, I can't believe that this is in the Bible, the reason for that is God allowed Solomon to put in his journal his emotions and his feelings. And last week, we sort of followed Solomon through the, through the search. Remember we say he was kind of like clicking through the channels? You know, he started off with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make myself happy. And he turned on the comedy channel and he laughed. And he said, well, laughter doesn't get me anywhere. And then he turned over to HGTV and started doing homes and projects and palaces and gardens and all that stuff. And then when that didn't make him happy, he got into money and he made $320 million a year just in gold. He had all kinds of wealth, richest man in the world. And he tried all these different kinds of things. He had sex partners, 700 wives he married, 300 women that were just there for whatever he wanted. And you name it, Solomon tried it. And at the end of his search, Solomon, we saw last week, said that he hated life. He just didn't want to get up in the morning. Had all the money, all the sex, all the power, all the things that people think they want, and he, and he hated his life. And it's really important for us because Solomon was able to execute a search that you and I will never be able to. He had more money than we have. He had more power than, than we have. As I said, in a democracy, we have parameters. We have rules. But when you're king, nobody's going to tell you no. So Solomon just got to do all kinds of things that you and I will never get to do. And at the end of the day, he said he hated life. No more carrots. No more motivations. He busted all his myths, and he said he hated life. There was nothing worthwhile anywhere. And finally, he gave up in despair. Now, what came out of that search is what we're going to talk about this morning. When Solomon put everything that he had into this search and it didn't come up with happiness, he then began to feel a sense of injustice. You know, he was in the arcade of life and the machine had eaten his quarter and it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. And I hope you, I hope you uh, will give me a little patience this morning because I want to walk through a lot of scripture. I want us to take a look at a sampling of Solomon's feelings about how life wasn't fair. And what's really cool about this is <clears throat> this is 3,000 years later. And I think you're going to find a lot of resonance with our own feelings that we have oftentimes as Americans. So let's jump in here. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 4. Solomon said, Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place in our world. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and the victims are helpless. So I conclude the dead are better off than the living. And most fortunate of all are those who were never born, for they've never seen all the evil that was done in the world. You ever feel like that? I mean, it'd be better off not to even be born because this world is such a ratty place and it just eats all your quarters and it'd be better if you just never were born in the first place. That's what Solomon said. Now chapter 9, verse 11. I've observed something else in this world of ours. Fastest runner doesn't always win the race and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. You know, when we quote this verse, we usually do it with sort of this glow on our face, you know, battle isn't always to the strong and the race isn't always to the swift. And we sort of, we sort of think, wow, isn't that cool? Solomon was upset about that because he said the battle should go to the strong and the race should go to the fastest. He said the wise are often poor and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. Look at this. It's all decided by chance by being at the right place at the right time. Oh, we have a saying for that, don't we? It's not what you know. It's who oh, you know. Yeah, Solomon 3,000 years ago was all over that. He said life's not fair. 
Smartest people don't always get ahead. Best educated people don't always, you know, get where they ought to be. And the most skillful people are not the highest compensated. Solomon said, life's not fair. It's all decided by chance. It's randomness. It's being at the right place at the right time. Chapter 7, verse 15. In this meaningless life, I've seen everything, including the fact that some good people die young and some wicked people live on and on. So don't be too good or wise. Why destroy yourself? Like I said, some of these things you're going to be amazed to find in the Bible. But God is just letting Solomon pour out his emotions in their raw essence. And he's saying, I can't figure it out. I don't know why the good die young. I don't know why the Hugh Hefners of the world just go on and on and on. And Solomon's saying, I'm not making any sense of it. Verse 9 of chapter 8. I've thought deeply about all that goes on here in the world, where people have the power to hurt each other. And I've seen wicked people buried with honor. How strange that they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are praised in the very city where they committed their crimes. Uh-oh. Ouch. Psalm is saying, some of the worst people I see are the people who go to church. And they're the ones who, you know, get the honor and the accolades and the props. And Psalm is saying, I'm struggling with that. And, and i got to tell you, that's true. I mean, I've been a pastor um, for almost 30 years. And one of the things that I've discovered is some of the meanest people I've ever met were people that were in church. I mean, you know, and and it's just such a a, a sad thing because the the outside world looks at the church and saying, wow, you know, he goes to church and she goes to, you know, she goes to that Messiah church over there on the expressway and and I can't believe she does that and he acts like that and he loses his cool and blows his, you know, loses his temper and all those kinds of things. And Solomon's saying, I've thought about it and it's just odd. Verse 14 of chapter 8. And this is not all that's meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked, and wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. Does that sound sound recent to us? I mean, these same things that Solomon is decrying are the same things that, that bother us. We're upset because life doesn't seem to be equitable. It doesn't seem to be fair. And I know because our time is brief this morning, I can't give you the whole book, but if you want to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see that I just gave you a sampling of what Solomon was saying about life. He's saying it isn't fair. You know, doesn't all, race doesn't always go to the, to the fastest. The battle doesn't always go to the strongest. And good people are treated like bad people, and bad people are treated like good people. And things don't end well for people who are good, and things end well for people who are bad. And, and, and he's worried about all this. So let me, let me ask you a question this morning. One of the things that I really fear whenever I stand before you is I want to make sure that I'm never less than academically honest with you. Because so many of you, you know, when you, when you evaluate a church, a lot of you, you, you never really intended to be in church, but you came to Messiah and you said, I'm going to give Messiah a chance because it's a little different, it's a little unusual, and you, and you listen to me and you expect academic honesty from me. So let's lay it on the table. Is Solomon right? No sugarcoating, no spiritual spin. Is he right? Sort of. There are elements of what Solomon said that are absolutely true, that exists in our world. But here's what I want to get to this morning in our brief message. Here's what I want to know. These feelings of injustice that Solomon is encountering, how much of it is inside Solomon and how much of it is truly outside? Because see, Solomon is saying it's all external. This is the world as I find it. For those of you who've read the book of Ecclesiastes and you find that expression under the sun, as I've said to you in the last two sermons, this comes from an idea that wise people, you know, intelligentsia, the smart people had in those days, they felt like that if they observed, observed enough life, they could analyze it and figure life out. And Solomon's done that. He's observed life, and he said, out there, it's a jungle. Out there, it's not fair. But what I want to know is, 
How much of that injustice was in here? And how much of it was truly out there? Because see, that's something you and I need to know. We're just born, I mean, it comes to us, we articulate it. One of the first things that we learn to say is, it's not fair. How much of it is us? How much do we bring? And how much of it really is out there in the world? Well, before we go a step further, we need to look at three forces that are going on in Solomon's life. There are three things. If you're, if you're scoring this this morning, there are three forces that are at work in his life. And here they are. Number one, it's excess. Excess. Now listen, you know, God intends for one man to find one woman for one lifetime. God does not intend for a man to have a thousand women. God does not intend for that at all. I know you know that. But having said that, if he'd had 10 women, that would have been a problem. That would have been an issue. A hundred women would have been crazy, but a thousand. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a quintessential definition of excess. <laughs> you know? $320 million a year in gold, what are you going to do with that? That is excess. I mean, Solomon is just he is wallowing in excess. That's where Americans are today. We have so much, we don't even know how much we have. And you say, well, Mark, I'm, Solomon was rich. I'm not rich. Listen to this. As rich as Solomon was, he never had a hot fudge Sunday. You realize that? That's right. He never even got to drive a Hyundai. So I just want you to know that. Excess. For those of you who drive Hyundais, listen, they're great cars. No problem. Second thing that characterized his life was restlessness. Because, see, excess, even though he, he experienced excess, it wasn't getting him where he wanted to go. So he was restless. I mean, it was like he was always churning, trying to figure out what comes next. And again, that's where we are today. I mean, we get a house, but we want the next house. We get a car, but we want the next car. We get clothes, but we want more clothes. We are restless. You get a new house, six months later, you're at spring parade of homes looking at houses. Right? Restless. And I think that surprised Solomon. Because he thought, you know, if I ever achieve excess, I'm going to be happy. But he had restlessness. The third thing that characterized his life that I see also in America today was entitlement. Because Solomon said, I've got excess, I'm restless, but I ought to be made happy. I, it ought to work for me. And I hear this from time to time. People, you know, do the craziest things. And when I ask them why they would do such crazy things, they say, well, God wants me to be happy. Entitlement. You owe it to me. Now, Here's the thing I want to get across to all of us here today, because if you and I, if we're engaged in acquiring excess and we're restless and we have a sense of entitlement, I want us to know life will always be unfair. You add those three things and you will always come up to unfairness. That's a fact. Here's what I want you to see right out of the box, because we're going to think about how to deal with this, how to deal with injustice. God has been honest with us about this world. From the very get-go, God has said this world is not what this is about. Remember on Easter, I told you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says we weren't designed for this life. We were designed for the life to come. And Jesus said this, I've told you these things, John 16, verse 33, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Okay. I've been there. In this world you will have trouble. Jesus said that. You say, well, I'm surprised. I thought God wanted me to be healthy, wealthy, wise, and rich. Well, maybe he does. But even if you are, you're still going to have trouble. I, I, I've had the privilege of meeting some, of the, some very, very wealthy people with hundreds of millions of dollars. You know what I discovered? They have, still have trouble. I, I, I've met people who had the greatest marriages in the world. You know what I found out? Still have trouble. Jesus said, that's part of this world. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. 
Now, as we said in this whole study of Ecclesiastes, I'm not going to let Solomon drive the train because he's all messed up. We're going to go to the Bible for some life points to help us sort through this thing of injustice. Let me give you two life points, and I'll be through this morning. Here's the first one. When you deal with injustice, attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. Here's the first thing you need to think about. If you say, well, Mark, life's not fair for me. Just not working. I'm not finding the right, I didn't marry the right person. I don't have a good job. I don't have the money I want. And people treat me badly. And I don't have a charming personality. And I'm not one of the beautiful people. If you're one of those people who deals with injustice, first of all, make sure, this is big. This is so big. Make sure that you don't make your own injustice. Because if you have a bad attitude toward life, you will create a lot of the injustice that you perceive. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let me go back to Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 27. And Solomon's really at a low point at this point, so you're going to enjoy this. Watch this. Solomon said, this is my conclusion. I came to this result after looking into the matter from every possible angle. Just one out of every thousand men I interviewed can said to be upright, but not one woman. <laughs> okay, let's do the math. He said one out of a thousand men. How many women were in his life? A thousand. Solomon says, statistically, this can be proven. Not one woman can be trusted. Is that true? No. But Solomon thought it was. And you want to say, hey, bro, not a good idea to have a thousand women. You created that situation. If those women are not responding to you the way you think they ought to, you have to understand you're the one who created that environment. And that's how it is for a lot of us. I mean, we think, well, they don't treat me fair at the job, but how much of that's our own making? I mean, I'm not saying it all is, Maybe none of it is, but I just, I had to ask myself that question because I can get caught up in this just like anybody else. And sometimes the injustice I perceive is the injustice I help create. You know, it's like the, like the old story about the guy who, you know, he went to the doctor and said, doctor, I'm afraid I'm dying. He said, every place I touch on my body, it hurts. I touch my head, it hurts. I touch my chest, it hurts. I touch my arm, it hurts. I touch my leg, it hurts. He said, I'm afraid I'm dying. Doctor examined him. So I got good news and bad news for you. Good news is, you're not dying. Bad news, you got a broken finger. <laughs> and a lot of us, you know, we don't, we don't think life's fair. we got a broken finger. We're just appraising it wrong. Okay, let's move on. Second life point. Here's the second life point. Life's not fair. How do I deal with it? Well, Jesus said it wasn't going to be. He said there's going to be trouble. Number two, life point, uh, excuse me, contentment transforms the environment. Contentment transforms the environment. The Bible has a lot to say about contentment. The Greek word for contentment is just the word for enough. Enough. That's a word Americans don't seem to know. Enough. I don't need another car. What I have is enough. I don't need another house. What I have is enough. I don't need another wife. She's enough. Don't need another husband. He's more than enough. So, think about this for a moment. What is contentment? The Bible talks about contentment all the time. I, I really want, again, this is another one of those academic honesty things, because I want to make sure, because somebody's going to say, you know, walk out and say, Pastor, talk this morning about being happy with what you have, you know? Just, you know, bloom where you're planted and that kind of thing. That's, that's not really contentment. It's broader than this. I want you to imagine contentment as having brackets or parentheses. There's a starting point for contentment, and there's sort of a maturity point for contentment. And if you and I will be content with what we have, and who we are, then God will help us deal with injustice. Here's where contentment starts. Contentment starts by being at peace with what I cannot reasonably change. 
okay? Contentment starts with being at peace with what I cannot reasonably change. Highlight the words reasonably change because that's where it is. Because somebody can say, well, hey, man, Mark, <clears throat> I, I, I'm a pizza delivery man. I'm content with that. Well, if that's what your calling in life is, you have a right to be content with it. But if you could be a physician, if you could be a doctor, that wouldn't be contentment. That would just be underachieving. So contentment means I am at peace with what I cannot reasonably change. If I can reasonably change it, if I can reasonably better the environment, I should. That's not contentment. That's, that's just doing what you should do. But I want you to think about those words reasonably change again because let's say you have a house. You're married. You have a house. And you, you wish for a bigger house. And you, you talk with your wife about it, talk with your husband about it, crunch the numbers, and you say, here's the deal. If, if I get another job, you know, and my wife gets another job, we won't ever see each other, but we can buy this house. Can you change that? Yes. Can you reasonably change it? No. See what I'm saying? Contentment would be staying with that house because what you would risk and what you would lose in the process of changing it is not worthwhile. But that's the entry level. That's the entry place. See, you could be, a, you could be an atheist, an agnostic, and perform that part of contentment being at peace with what you can't reasonably change. But true maturity with contentment is this. It rises to the level of gratitude and thanksgiving to God for what I do have. And I say, God, it is enough what you have given me. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now that is an awesome verse. I wish I had the intelligence and the eloquence to preach that because it's huge. Contentment, we tend to define as the status quo. It's accepting the status quo, and yet the Bible says contentment is progress. Contentment is gain. Contentment is profit. It's moving forward. Contentment with godliness is great gain. Paul said, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, and we can put Solomon's name on the end of that verse. Many years ago, I used to be a fan of, of Peanuts, you know, the cartoon strip. And a lot of you maybe never read it or whatever, but when I was a kid, it was real popular. Charles Schultz wrote Peanuts. And one day, Linus is, is you know, is Charlie Brown finds him, and there are arrows that are, have lodged, that he's launched, arrows lodged in the fence. And Linus is painting bullseyes, targets around the arrows. And Charlie Brown asks him why he's doing that. He says, it's a lot easier to hit the target that way. That's not a good idea when you're talking about achieving, but when you're talking about contentment, it is. Because see, contentment paints the targets around the arrows. Contentment says, you know where I am? I'm content with that. You know who I'm married to? I'm content with her. What I do, I'm content with that. I can accept it. I find my happiness with what God has given me. Now, here's the thought that I had the other day, and I got to tell you, God gave me this before I was even working on this series. Because the Lord knows, you guys watch me, you know I have a very edgy personality. There are no pastels in me. I'm all bright colors. And my emotions, you know, I'm either real high or I'm real low. And one day, I was driving, and I was kind of low about, you know, wishing that I had something I didn't have and th thinking that maybe I was underprivileged for not having, you know, whatever this was that I wanted. And, the, and God just started talking to me. Not out loud, but you know how he talks to you on the inside. And I realized I wasn't content. And I learned one of the greatest lessons I'll ever learn. By the way, I was on Woodlawn Driving North, so if you want to learn that lesson, you get on Woodlawn Drive North and you can learn this lesson. <laughs> I said, you know, my problem is I'm not content. And I started thinking about all the blessings that I had, and instantly I became happy. Now, here's what God taught me. This is huge. 
You know, write this in stone. Don't tattoo it on yourself, but just write this in stone, okay? Contentment is the only real instant gratification. That's what God taught me that day. I never thought about that before. Contentment is the only real instant gratification because at the moment I chose to be content, I was instantly happy. It's a choice. If I ask the question, am I happy with my wife? My feelings, my attitude has a whole lot of bearing on the answer to that. If I say, am I happy with my job? My attitude has a lot of bearing on that. Am I happy with what I have? My attitude bears on that. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That's an education. I've learned to be content. Final. Let's dismount. Where's the wisdom in all this? You know, because I, I know somebody can listen to me this morning and say, well, Mark, I, I hear you, but that's just you know, being Pollyanna and playing the glad game and just looking on the bright side, and glasses half full kind of stuff and all that kind of thing. Not really. No, no, not at all. Because when you reach the place in life where you determine, you know what, I'm going to have a good attitude about this and I'm going to trust God to change the environment. I'm going to be thankful and happy with what God has given me and I choose to be grateful. You could say, well, what about all the things that aren't fair? What about the people that have treated me unfair? What about the stuff in our world that's not right? At that moment, you can turn that over to God. Because here's what the Bible says, and I'm taking, this is from Isaiah chapter 40, and it's all about when Jesus comes back. The Bible says every valley will be lifted and filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the, look at this, and the crooked and uneven shall be made straight. When Handel wrote the Messiah, he put that in there. Great, or he used, he, he used that scripture. The crooked will be made straight. I like that. Because there's a lot of stuff in our world that flat out is crooked. We'll be honest. It's not right. It's crooked. And God said it is. And Jesus said in this world you're going to have trouble because stuff is crooked. This world was broken in the box. But the Bible says when Jesus comes, he's going to make the crooked straight. And I can live with that. You know that? I can say, okay, it's crooked today, but there's somebody coming who's going to make it straight. In Jeremiah 17, verse 7, the Bible says, But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and their confidence. Man, my favorite song, we sang it last week, My Hope is in the Lord. I dare you to sit on your hands during that song. <laughs> That's what Jeremiah said. Blessed, happy are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and their confidence. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by the long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they go right on producing delicious fruit. That's what I want from Mark Hoover. It is a crooked world and it's not fair and life will eat your quarter. But I can handle that because the one who's coming will make the crooked straight and my hope and my confidence is in him. And if my roots just keep going deep down into him, God will take care of everything else. And the irony is, is in this crooked, unfair world that eats your quarter, I can go right on producing fruit. Isn't that great this morning? This is an awesome, awesome, give God glory. This is a great text today. I'm so glad you're here to enjoy this message, enjoy what God has to say to us. Let's stand together.